What does an 18-year veteran of the tech industry and a 20-year veteran of the military have in common? More than you might think. Welcome everyone to the, the Second, Second Act, Act Podcast. Podcast, leveling up your life's journey. What's up, Michael? Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you doing this morning? Man, I am excited for this episode. We got another phenomenal, phenomenal guest on today. So I'm ready to get started. Yeah, I, I'm super excited. Uh, this guest uh, I've known for a little while now, uh, and this is um, just sort of our uh, reunion uh, in some ways. Uh, and I'm excited to talk through um, his life story and, and some of the amazing things that he has going on. But before we do that, um, I wanted to just talk about the second act. Um, it's expanding into so many different directions these days. We've we've mentioned there's a movie called Second Act starring Jennifer Lopez that came out some years ago. Danielle <laughs> Steele just released a book called Second Act. Yeah, I've seen numerous articles in the Wall Street Journal uh, within the last six, 12 months talking about a person's second act in one form or another in life. So I think it's a thing now. I think I think the second act is a thing now. We've created a podcast, an online media company called The Second Act. So I'm pretty pretty excited to be riding that train uh, to see see where it takes us. I think we deserve the credit for starting. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I had not heard of The Second Act before we started this podcast. So I'm maybe, maybe we're the trendsetters. Yeah. And I mean, who knew? But you know, this takes people's thinking and emotions to another level when you're talking about um, a second act. Uh, it's it's the what-if scenario in a very positive way. You know, people are, are on a walk with their dog or they're driving in their car, yeah. commuting to work, and they're thinking, what if, what what would I do if I could do anything yeah. uh, in, in my second act in life? You know, I've, I've done some cool things. I've got a family. I've got friends. Uh, but if I could just do anything, what would that be? Um, and so in this episode, we are excited to be joined by Scott Bright, a native of South Florida who now calls the San Francisco Bay Area home. Nice. And with over 20 years in risk management and product development, Scott's an expert in the financial services and payments industry. He started his career in fraud mitigation and transitioned into risk product development, creating solutions for U.S. financial institutions most notably at Visa as head of global risk strategy. I don't know, maybe you guys carry a Visa card in your wallet. Um, I think most people do. <laughs> Where he led the development of one of the company's largest revenue programs while also mitigating major fraud losses. Wow. But there have been some life events along the way that gave Scott pause. And after 20 years in the corporate world, a story we hear often, Scott decided to start his own company, Bright Check, in 2022. Uh, he's the founder and CEO, where he leads a team of talented folks focused on consumer public safety for online dating. More to come on that later, an exciting topic and, and one I'm, I'm familiar with. Uh, outside of work, Scott is a sports enthusiast, where he enjoys scuba diving, boxing, and CrossFit. Uh, he's also a serial entrepreneur and a consultant to help solve some of the biggest threats in his respective industry. Man, 
That's it's quite the impressive background, Scott. Welcome, uh, right. welcome to the show, man. I, yeah. I, I appreciate it. I, I would like to say that this, it was all very tactfully planned, but uh, definitely a little bit, a little bit of luck tripping into some of this stuff was, was helpful. <laughs> Absolutely, every great story's got a little luck sprinkled yeah. in there. You want to yep. kick it off, Michael? Sure, absolutely. So, Scott, you grew up in South Florida. Uh, I grew up in South Florida as well. Uh, eventually made your way all the way across the country, literally, to San Francisco. Tell us about that, uh, what some of the childhood memories are that sort of shaped your thinking and influenced your decisions at, a, at an early age. Yeah, so... I mean, growing up in South Florida, um, definitely, you know, pretty much in Miami for the most of my life, uh, being younger, um, pretty, uh, pretty poor parents, you know, nothing major, but, uh, my dad actually worked, um, for Pan Am, remember data oh, yeah. uh, at American airlines. He was in, uh, avionics. And so basically kind of like a mechanic for the plane. Yeah. Uh, so because of that, uh, we were pretty avid travelers, um, around the world. Um, he actually was part of, it was called war the world airline road races it was a marathon club just for airline industry people so we would stay in probably some of the worst hotels but we were flying first class so i learned how to kind (laughs) of travel um at a young age uh required to wear a full suit when i was even like a little kid to get into first class this is old dated kind of rules but what that did comparative to a lot of kind of my you know my my childhood friends and peers and family uh, is that it started really giving me kind of a very worldly view of that. You know, I mean, I don't live in this, you know, we're, this, our world is not this bubble. Yeah. It's a yeah. lot of people feel like they live in their city, in their town, et cetera. Um, and that's where it kind of expanded me out, um, seeing the rest, you know, the rest of the country, a lot of work I travel with a lot around all the country. Um, and I would say I travel, I used to travel all over and every time I'd come back, be like, oh, I'm glad to be home back in South Florida. But every time I went to California, I was like, damn, I need to go back. So I, I kind of did this big exodus, um, evaluate as you know, my career kind of took me through. Um, and I looked for about a year, full year to, to try to find something. And, um, I kind of landed with that job at Visa and I was like, and they relocated me and did all this kind of corporate package stuff. And I was like, let's go. Nice. Wow. And what were you doing, um, on the, in that first job? So I, I mean, really kind of my career. So like the first 10 years of my career, I did risk and fraud investigation. Okay. So I was like okay. a risk and fraud analyst, did credit underwriting. Um, and I really was just kind of in the trenches of just doing investigations on, on these bad guys and bad guys don't care the industry. They, they jump all over. So that's why it was interesting working in banking and merchant processing is that we yeah. saw all the fraud schemes, which was crazy. Um, but then I was into new product development. So I was working at a company called FIS. They're the largest financial tech yeah. company in the world. Um, we're actually building person verification and background check um, type solutions okay. for banks. Very applicable to what are you with Brightcheck. Visa found me and they were like, hey, we want you out because I, I kind of became a jack of all trades for risk and fraud. And they were like, that's what they needed. They needed somebody who just kind of understood the entire kind of payments ecosystem. Um, um, the best part of my career, because before it was, I thought I was, you know, in the credit industry, the merchant processing industry, the debit industry. What happened is that I thought I was industry jumping, but then all of a sudden, lo and behold, it all turned into the payments industry. I was like, oh, I went from having a couple of years in each industry to now, you know, a decade in the industry. Jack of all trades. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Yeah, Scott, you started in the financial services in, in mortgage underwriting in early 2000s, mid 2000s, which was a really interesting period uh, for mortgage underwriting, um, given 
in 2008, 2009, we had the financial crisis and and some of that uh, people attribute the cause of that is is the mortgage underwriting standards were a little loose uh, at that point in time. A little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any interesting stories to share in that in that realm? Yeah. So I actually had uh, really a front row seat to the entire <laughs> explosion of it. Yeah. So going back kind of one step. So before. Um, when I, I, I my first kind of risk and fraud job, um, I ended up, I was working part-time at American Express. They needed risk and fraud investigators. I got trained by these very, very older men and women that have been doing this for years. And this was before technology identification. They would just get like triggers and like literally print out reports from like yeah. punch cards and then kind of evaluate and say, look, gut check. We would look at big data swaths, et cetera, but they trained me and all that exciting but then I, I shifted over to mortgages because i at that time i was just graduating college as a finance major with a minor in real estate weird okay. minor but yeah. I, there, I, I just used my elective so i was like okay um so then i became a mortgage underwriter and i ended up working for a company called uh clayton and they're they're I think they're publicly traded still um but their main client was morgan stanley okay and we were doing it secondary wow. mortgages so these were these were people okay. flood with mortgages people living in the houses to bundle these all up to turn them into the the real estate investment trust, which went out of the market. Yep, that was the decay of the entire kind of system. And what was interesting is because I was you know this risk and fraud guy, um, they started giving them the, like something doesn't smell right. I mean, literally, I would do investigations of people literally cutting and pasting uh, credit reports and like credit lines to like copy it and document. These were coming from mortgage brokers, oh whatever, my so gosh. super slimy. And then we were seeing based, I'd be like, hey guys, you know. This is a stated income or stated asset loan. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, you know, they say they make, you know, $500,000 a year and, you know, she's a house cleaner and he's a janitor. I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? They're like, doesn't matter. Stated income, stated, stated asset. Income, so yeah. I had this wow. and they told me, sit down, shut up. I was like 23. I was like, okay, yeah. good job. <laughs> right. And then we saw it. And then all of a sudden the first article that came out actually claimed, you know, say that all these secondary mortgages. It was a lot of the ones that we underwrote on that. And it was just boom. And it solved the decay and the implosion of the whole yeah. thing. And I was like, wow. I was like, I want to say I was right, but I was like, <laughs> I, you know, I had a bad feeling about the whole thing and I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. So it just kind of front row. And then we saw it, you know, and then again, the next yeah. few years. Scott, there's the movie big short, which I think it does a phenomenal job, but I think you're capturing exactly what one of the actors that came out, who it was had, it, he's like okay. seeing this stuff firsthand and recognizing, mm-hmm. oh man, there's this massive fraud, but it's it's not isolated in one area of the no. country or one, yeah. um, you know, one yeah. part of of the home buying process. And did you have that same feeling? Did you have like that gut feeling, like, oh crap, something is about to happen? Yeah, so I I really did because again from that's why I kind of like to talk about how I I learned all this kind of risk and fraud investigation stuff from yep. American Express. I was like, this can't be right, and it was just so many times where it was like these high level people. I'm like, guys, this is an ugly loan. This is not because they basically were taking A paper, which is you know perfect credit, perfect, and saying, oh well, yeah, this is A paper. No, it's B paper. That's C paper, which means it's just like low yeah. credit worthiness. <laughs> but I see seeing it again. I was like, you know, it was, it was a great job for me at the time. You know, come right out of college. And again, it was just sit down, shut up. And I was just like, well, what am I going to do? And I was like, I couldn't believe it. And it was just, and then just as the reports came out and all this stuff came in, I was like, wow, man. And when the movie, The Big Short came out, yeah. I was like, I, I think I was like yelling at the team. I was like, yeah, 
Yeah, that's what I, I saw. saw that happen in yeah. real life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and most people I know, like, well, I think it was like Margot Robbie gets in there, like, gives like an explanation of like yeah. what it is. I was, I was yes. like, this was yep. terrible. This was yeah. terrible, and it was systemic across the country. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a couple of really good movies about that period. One is Margin yeah. Call. I don't know if anyone's yeah. seen Margin Call, and then right. The Big Short, uh, and and I know there's a number of other uh, others that were created, but. Uh, it's a ho- it's a period I hope we never relive. I, there's a lot of uh, Americans impacted by by that situation. So, yeah. but how do you go from uh, your dad being an airline uh, mechanic expert to uh, having this sort of worldly childhood, traveling all yeah. over the place, to getting a degree in finance and then getting into risk management? Like, what what are some of the things that like stick out and get you into that world? So what really kind of pushed me into finance is that it was, you know, my, my parents, it was always kind of very taboo with it as a lot of households and financial literacy and talking mm-hmm. about, um, I've actually seen in my time in bank, I've seen surveys that parents would rather talk about sex with their kids than they'd rather talk about money wow. with <laughs> their kids. That's a problem. That's yeah. a major problem. Yeah. And I, I saw my parents struggle and, you know, my mom was a bookkeeper and, you know, so like, I mean, they did, they did all right. Um, but I could see just financially, it just, you know what I mean? They were just kind of doing this nine to five grind, you know, not really understanding what's kind of going on. So I kind of made it my personal mission as I was kind of graduating through high school and to college saying, look, you know what I want? Well, originally I was a computer science major, but I was like, this is boring. I was <laughs> And I, um, I jumped over. I said, I was like, look, I just, I think the financial literacy of understanding it. And I wanted to be an expert. I want to be an expert around finance in there. Got it. But where it kind of jumped over to risk and fraud is that, so Miami is, is literally the fraud capital of the world. There is the most amount of crimes. There's the most amount of fraud. No shocker, probably. Um, there's lots of mafias and it's <laughs> kind of out there. But so, I mean, frankly, you know, and I, I did club promoting for a while. I was in the kind of the bar scene on that. So I'd always rub up against these guys. You can see liquid, them liquid nightclub. Where yeah, <laughs> there's like live and like on there, and yeah. you could see like these. These are just bad characters. So I was very familiar, you know. Again, and I thought it was actually more ubiquitous around the country, which I, I was like, oh no, it's just kind of really slimy down here. But <laughs> um, I identified, so I was like, wow. So I, I, I kind of understood how these guys thinks, you know, and I, yeah. I was able to get in their head. So, you know. I was, I'm able to really kind of think like a fraudster because I've seen that there's so many schemes with it. So yeah. to me, I always just found it fascinating. And, you know, I moved into finance and banking, uh-huh. uh, but now as I kind of move my, my, my career, I'm just following the bad guys because they're not going away. They're just moving into other industries. Wow. Interesting. So now, um, fast forward, you've, you've started your own business, but were there any early signs, any precursors um, that, kind of pushed you in that direction to go from corporate America into entrepreneur and, and, and why at 20 years or why Um, when you decided to jump out? Uh, well, I felt, I thought my life wasn't challenging enough. So I wanted to do probably the most painful thing ever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough. Um, so, I mean, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. I've had a couple little small startups, nothing to this scale, um, where, Throughout my career, as I moved into kind of product development and product develop, like product manager is kind of like um, the quarterback of of new technology. We help come up with the ideas, what's a strategy, mm-hmm. how do they build it, how do we sell it, how do we market it, and you know we're kind of this like internal corporate CEO. 
So I know eventually one day I wanted to get to this point. And this was always kind of my mind's eyes where I wanted to head. So every skill set or every activity I did typically within my job function was to try to groom myself how to become, nice. you know, a CEO and start my own company, which again, quite a while ago, it was like pie in the sky. Yep. So, you know, moved out, you know, moved through my career, you know, great career in South Florida, moved out here to the Bay Area. Um, you know, Visa was definitely, you know, high pressure, high tent. Yep. Found out uh, my first couple of panic attacks that occurred was uh, okay. definitely moving out here. Um, pretty much a leap, pretty big leap of faith, moving my entire family out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but where I kind of saw is that one, it's just, frankly, I was burned out on corporate. It was just, you know, work stealing and just backstabbing. And th- I mean, some of it is just the level I, I've never seen before. And what I thought was interesting is that, so within the financial industry started coming up, you know, uh, my, my big ballywick of risk and fraud strategy was to identify the biggest threats in the ecosystem. And there's, you know, dozens and dozens of them around the world, um, as well as in help create products and programs to stop them. So there was one, of course, a big one I identified was our romance scams. Now a $3.3 billion wow. loss problem only stated. And the financial industry was like, you know what? We don't care because this isn't a chargebacker dispute. This isn't fraudulent transaction. These are people willingly giving money. They're being Jeez. completely hoodwinked as to that, the legitimacy of this person and those funds. But the payments industry was like, we don't care. So I saw this huge, huge kind of white space and growing and growing. And I was like, you know, I'm like, there's got to be a solution out there. There's got to be a solution out there. I was like, well, there's a little bit out there and it's terrible. Yeah. I was like, I can build a better mousetrap. And so I took kind of the the leap of faith. (laughs) So you go from from heading up Visa's global risk strategy, uh, the largest of, I think, the credit card brands, something like a billion cards in circulation. A billion. It's It's insane. And you're like, eh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go take this knowledge, find this niche, jump into things head first and, and do my own thing. Uh, so tell us, sure. tell us a little bit more about that journey and why, why you're focusing specifically on, on consumer safety and online dating space with, with what you're doing now. Yeah. So as you can hear, I mean, I have a, quite the passion for not yeah. these bad guys. I mean, I, there's actually no better buzz that I get than when I know I've, I've, I've stopped or I've mitigated a fraud or a scheme and I've, I've mitigated millions of dollars over the year. Um, but I found is that, you know, just one, again, kind of being burnt out with it. And frankly, either I'm creating products with these companies and it gets watered down by any kind of executives and like, they're like, it turns from hey, we're going to stop bad guys this way. They're like, well, we can do this, but if we change it a little bit, we'll make a bunch of money. It doesn't stop the bad guys as much, but we'll make a lot of money. And I was like, and then on top of that, it's not like I was, you know, I was coming up with these ideas. Not like I was getting a rev share. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. They're just yeah. like, you know, good job, Scott. Do it again. I'm like, okay. So seeing the right on the wall, I mean, again, a great salary, great job yeah. with it. But I knew I would never be um, independent wealthy. I mean, not like I am yet, but yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the goal. Yeah. But it's, it's really, I want to kind of drive towards that. And I found just, you know, working for other kind of startups, so a couple of startups and, you know, some other companies, it's just, a lot of them are just doing it. Not, not that they're not doing it, they're doing it wrong. They're just not doing it sure. right. And yeah. there's a lot of ego and a lot of passion because, you know, how I kind of run the team is that at the end of the day, I don't care what I think is neat or cool. In the end of the day, it's what, you know, the collective, you know, customer wants, solving problems and listening, you know, to the people who work with me. And 
I found is that I was not getting any passion out of course what I was doing was corporate, you know, just yep. turning wheels and doing products. And I was, and I was like, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's so great. I'm like, I lost the buzz. I lost the buzz around all that. And I was like, you know what? So now the massive pay cut has <laughs> been yeah. over quite a yeah. while. Yeah. And finally, yeah, which is nice. Um, but then I got to shift. And so now, you know, I mean, yeah, this is the lowest paying job I've had the last you know, probably five, six years, but I've never had so much kind of um, self-worth wow. um, and value. And I mean, I wake up every single day and I'm just like, I'm glad to be here. And, you know, it's a grind every day. I don't really have days off as things yep. are moving, but it's just, it just, it feels right. And it feels right. And I know this is again, what my mind's eye was five, 10 years ago. Um, so it feels good to finally kind of put this into practice. Yeah. It's funny how much similarity there is among entrepreneurs and like, there's this sort of sliver of rebelliousness yep. that exists <laughs> in all of us. Um, in some ways we have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder for one reason or another to get something done. We want ownership. We're willing to work 80 hours a week so we don't have to work 40 hours a week in corporate America. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I know people like to broadcast how many hours a week that they're working, especially in like the hustle culture. And I, I, I can't quite figure out how they're keeping track of that. I mean, are you counting, right. you know, the minutes that you're thinking about work or yeah. like hitting a keyboard? Are you meeting with customers? Like, I think if you're saying that you're just saying it for a soundbite <laughs> yeah. because to your point, Scott, like you're, you're, it's just a constant, but because you have passion and it's fun and you own it, you, you just want to do it all the time. Um, and you got to own your days and own your weeks and, uh, to make progress and treat it like a real job. It's not just going to you know, fall in your lap for 99.9% for yeah. of people. But, but, but there's no like, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a flip off Friday where it's take the time off, you know, maybe I had a little bit of too many cocktails out before there's no, there's no hangover day, nope. but, uh, but you know, where I do find the passion. Cause I mean, I, I, I've been a workaholic for all, pretty much my entire life. Yeah. And I do really try to kind of make that, that work-life balance to me is very important. Um, yep. I mean, I basically, when I hit 40 a few years ago, um, you know, again, everything on paper was great. I had this, you know, great career, great job. I had a family and I, yep. I was miserable. <laughs> yep. I was, I wasn't happy in my marriage. I wasn't happy with my job and that I was like, everybody's like, what, what is wrong? I was just like, I had to change. So I guess, you know, called a midlife crisis, which instead yep. of buying a sports car, I decided to get a divorce and. You'd be an entrepreneur, so yeah. okay. at least I got to turn it into something positive. But now that I have you know my new beautiful fiance, I have my eleven year old daughter. I've never been so present than I have before because before wow. I was yeah. just like you know, like almost life was a distraction to work. And so now I've kind of shifted that. So that's why again at the end of the like I I wake up early intentionally again do my own self care, working out, yeah, take care of the business. So then when it does hit five six o'clock, boom, close the laptop, present for for the people who are important. Yeah. Michael, yeah. Michael, we, don't you think it's interesting in, in the guests that we've interviewed and Scott's kind of hitting it as well. It's, it's a slow transition. It's a slow, yeah. um, sucking of life that I, I see is a common theme with people going through corporate America, going through whatever their first act is. And it's kind of, they, they're starting off with passion and they're giving it everything they've got. And then it's slowly just grinding them down, grinding them down yeah. until, like in Scott's case, he finds something, he finds a way to pivot and go into work for himself or in several, yeah. several of our other guests where they, they say, man, this, this thing's always been a passion. I'm going to go pursue that. And all of a sudden it's like a light bulb moment and they realize, oh my gosh, I got my passion back for yeah. whatever this thing is. It's, 
it's just so interesting to me that that theme keeps reoccurring how slowly yeah. people's lives kind of leak out for what? Yeah. Because maybe they're not pursuing that ultimate passion or maybe because it's corporate America and and whatever that is within it. Scott, what's your take on that? I, th- I think you hit it on the head. And and I find it interesting is that, again, as I kind of go back to, I'm just calling it my midlife crisis now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, looking back is that what I didn't see, I was like, I'm like, I don't want to be 60 and regret that I didn't take any kind of leap of faith. Okay. But again, I have, you know, family and bills, responsibilities, like yeah. an adult. And, you know, it, it just, I, it was not like I was like 22 and I can be like, doesn't matter. I can go sleep on somebody's couch. Not an opportunity. So I think that's where, you know, I, I always kind of made these little small strategic moves yep. to kind of plan for this stuff. And again, as I, as I kind of mentioned before, is that if I'm, as I'm going through, I was going through my career, saying, oh, one day I'm going to be an entrepreneur, a little bit of pie in the sky, but I was like, I kind of use all that stuff. But same thing from a personal level say, okay, look, you know, let me, let me bolster my stocks and my savings. Cause I know I'm gonna have to live off of that for a year, which right. I did. And it was just kind of putting those kind of places in there to making sure that, you know, I have, you know, appropriate medical insurance yep. for not just me and my daughter and so, and just kind of putting all these things um, and just making sure I was kind of put on there. And I think it's identifying and basically making list of what you need to do and just chunking it away because if you say, oh, I want to change my life is this big ubiquitous goal mm-hmm. on there. Mm-hmm. Chunk it into small little pieces and yeah. I kind of want you to do that, that it makes it easy and digestible and you can get it through. That's Yeah, that's good advice. I think you just helped solidify it for me. We start off in life, we start off in our first career with huge ambition and huge (laughs) goals. And as we go through life and and age, we start adding a spouse and then kids and a house payment and a car payment and boats and vacations and all these things, right? That we have to start or, or we have to make provision for, right? And that pile gets bigger and bigger and bigger which keeps us from being able to take that, that leap of faith and say, I'm just going to put all that aside and I'm going to jump and pursue this one thing. And very rarely do I see people saying, okay, let's put all that away for a little bit and let's pursue our ultimate goal. You're obviously doing it. Um, and some of our other guests, that's what's made the difference is saying, okay, all that other stuff I can reaccumulate or I can mm-hmm. re-pursue but I'm going to go after this passion because I've only got one life. I've only got one chance to do it. So I'm going to go for it. Um, so I commend you on that. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, you know, there was one, there was, I don't even know where I heard it, but it really, really resonated with me. And it was, if you're willing to take a step down from your current standard of living for a couple of years to elevate it for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. That, you know, because the opposite is as too much ego. There's too much ego. Yeah. Somebody like, oh, you know, I got to have the flashy car. I got to yeah. have the flashy this. Yep. And there. Because you keep a building that are like, oh, I can't go on fancy vacations. And again, that was some of the, you know, the hard conversation I had to have with my fiance, which, you know, we've come to that, you know, pretty, pretty established life. And I was like, I got to do this. Mm-hmm. You got to do this. If not, you know what I mean? And now she's seen, you know, things are really, you know, there is some, <laughs> some ups and downs definitely as we're starting the business, but now we've kind of really hit this gear and I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're not there yet, but, um, I mean, again, taking those step downs on, I mean, this has been a pretty humbling year, uh, couple, last couple of years, um, around this, but 
um, it smells good. I mean, it's good for the soul. You know what I mean? Because I probably had a little bit too chip on my shoulder, probably a little bit <laughs> too much ego on some of this stuff. And I was like, I know everything and I can do this, but the is, world had t- showed me different. Yeah. <laughs> so. Entrepreneurship is very humbling for sure. <laughs> um, and you know, to an outsider looking at your, your first act, your, the your uh-huh. first part of your life, they were like, Scott's got everything. He's got the high paying yeah. job, got the families doing uh-huh. all the fancy vacations, has all the things. But inside you were, you were struggling. Like it was, it was not, and you were becoming disenchanted with sort of where you thought corporate America was going to take you and what it would do for you and all these sort of things. But thankfully you'd recognize that in the process that at least there's something more. And I'm going to think about my career and the things I do strategically to get you to this point, to jump into entrepreneurship. And you had to make some hard decisions in that process, leaving corp, leaving a high paying job. Um, figuring out that it, you didn't have the right spouse and, and needed to move on from, from that situation. And now here you are, uh, living out your dream. Um, and there's a, there's a, uh, one of my favorite sayings is take risks when you're young so you can tell stories when you're old. Good. And, uh, and I, I like to think about that in, in a lot of the things that I do and, uh, and you know, you, you're an inspiration to me, Scott, and, and you sure. taking the leap and building what you're doing. And I know there's a, a, a personal story, um, that, that you have that I think helps fuel your motivation for what you're doing now. I don't know if you want to share a little bit about the genesis of Bright Check and how you got started and kind of where you guys are at and how you're expanding, but would love to chat about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, th- there's definitely some, some personal heartstrings on a lot of this stuff and, I mean, again, one with the ideation of this product, I'll never forget it. It was my fiance, some of her girlfriends, and the, one was going to go out on a date with somebody. And they all, I saw them all get on their phones. They all started turning into investigators. And I was <laughs> like, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? And they're <laughs> like, oh, we're trying to find this guy, you know, <clears throat> social media, public records on that. And I was like, is this what you guys do every time? They're like, oh yeah, definitely. And they're like, <laughs> you feel it. And I found it interesting is that, you know, one, because again, when I built all these kind of person verification stuff for banks, I was like, I know, I know where all this data is and started looking at some of the, you know, some of the competitors that are out there. A lot of them are working off of five-year-old data because they don't care uh, because they're harvesting user data for emails and phone numbers. So I was like, that's super slimy. And they're, they got the the DOJ and the FTC crawling up their pant leg. I was like, this is the solutions out there. That's terrible. But <laughs> As in the midst of that, um, I did have, uh, you know, a very close friend. She, um, she actually was part of a very abusive relationship and she was, she was my neighbor in the apartment I was living at the time. Uh, we were very close, um, uh, me, me and my fiance, and we didn't know she was hiding bruises and all this abuse this guy was doing. Wow. And I was like, holy cow. And it eventually it all kind of bubbled out because she was just beaten to hell. And she's like, guys, I need help. I was like, holy shit. So one, I got very passionately involved in that, um, and we ended up, the good thing is that we ended up getting him, you know, getting him arrested. He saw some real jail time, which was good. Um, it was very, very painful. Uh, but then I saw, you know, I was like, let's, let's pull his background. Cause now at this point we already kind of started kicking off some of the product. And I was like, oh, this guy has a sketchy past like crazy. I was like of abuse of, you know, arrested for, you know, potential rape. And, uh, so I was like, I was like, see, this is the kind of information that people need to know. Yeah. And frankly, since covid people forgot how to act so things like assault rape murder um have just skyrocketed um as well as you know the the underlying dirtiness is around human trafficking it's the most profitable business in the world 
And a lot of times it's people using dating apps or these different platforms. And now they say, hey, let's meet out on a date. We know, they basically know where she's at, what time, what she's probably wearing. Cause she's probably sent a picture or they've asked for a oh, picture on yeah, there. Yep. And another third party person just plucks them off the street and they're gone. And it's not like anybody's reported that to the dating apps or on there. Just a missing person. Yeah. It's wild. And and so you've you used that personal um, relationship, that story, uh, to help fuel what you're doing. Yep. And I know you launched in 2022. Tell us about some of the amazing progress you've made to help the community of folks who who Can are online um, and do need uh, trust and safety and, and the protection uh, that. Uh, your your friend um, probably wish she had it in that moment when she decided to move forward to that individual. Yeah, so it's been quite the interesting ride, um, you know, because we specifically or initially kind of developed this out for thinking, you know, online dating. That's where we're solving the problem. Um, but one, it quickly started materializing that there's other there's other use cases and in industries that can use this. So similar is like. Um, uh, online marketplaces, so like Facebook Marketplace, yeah, Etsy's, yeah. Craigslist, very similar problems. Lots of scams, yeah. lots of people trying to siphon money out of you, and then lots of strong arm robbery or assault and all this stuff. So I was like, okay, wow. But you know, from a progress standpoint, you know, it was painful getting into the into the uh, into the app stores. Apple okay. basically blocked us for months and months and months, which uh, they were worried that we you know we were. Because it's a lot of personal data. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're you know, you're building profiles on these people, you're maliciously using this. We're like, whoa, calm down. So we finally ended up having some really <laughs> deep conversations with their with their legal group. Like, guys, we know there's these other ones that are out there, which you've already grandfathered in, allowed in, who are doing nasty stuff. We're actually trying to flip this all on its head and do kind of more of the right thing. And then eventually we finally got that approval, which was huge. So now we've, you know, we're all in the app stores, we're all kind of going along and we actually got punched in the mouth in a really good way, uh, roughly about six months ago. So we ended up solidifying uh, an agreement with uh, one of the largest uh, uh, dating app platforms that are out there. Um, they came to us and said, hey, we want to purchase two free checks uh, for all of our users across all wow. of our portfolio because they saw such a value and such a you know a need for their, um, their consumers that they, they want to be able to, one, give this away for free because... What's happening in the industry, you know, because if you talk to some people, they're like, oh, background checks, oh, it's too intrusive, oh, verification. Yeah. Well, so is that similar type of statements 20 years ago, way before, like, uh, you know, Homeland Security, Patriot yeah. Act, stuff started coming out for banks. They like, no, we need to verify people because yeah. there's nothing, you know, what is just like, what's a blue check bar? Oh, I paid Twitter or X, you know, some money. $8 or, a month. Uh, there's that yeah there, there's there's no continuity or consistency through that so yeah we saw it i was like look okay we basically want to take over the check mark space not even yeah. if anything but we want to take that over because we want to be kind of that ubiquitous check mark cross platforms to show that's you know that we are that person that kind of the uber of check marks that go across different platforms then as well as bringing it in real life because it's fine so if you meet somebody you know in-person interaction you know a girl's going to maybe go home with a guy after a date or something like that. We do, we call it a tap to date. So basically we want to have cards that you can just tap somebody and say, Hey, they've been verified. Hey, this information has been exchanged. Cause even if it's private, you know, it's still kept private. If something happens, if there's human trafficking, if there's yeah. assault, there's things and they don't have that information, we would have that information. Yeah. And now we can work close with law enforcement to help stop some of these bad guys. And at least putting this out, it'll help mitigate 
and it'll help them because they'll be like, well, make them think twice before they start kind of screwing around. Which right now it's a wild, wild west. Yeah, it is. And that's, that's really circumstantial, right? Like some of these platforms, if they're heavily used, um, but they haven't been around for that long. I mean, you were comparing it to financial institutions that have been around for, for a century or more. Um, and, and they were just getting up to speed on, on some of the things and continue to do so as, as, uh, financial transactions evolve. But this space is what, like a decade old? Uh, um, 20 years, actually. 20, 20 years. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Damn. Wow. That's I, yeah. 20 years. I've been out of the game for a while, Michael. I'm dumb. Di- yeah. <laughs> actually this, this, I don't recall this game existing when I, when I was, uh, yeah. not married, but. Um, it's well, a, it was pretty smart, though. This was, I think, Match.com was was the first one. Uh, it was all website. It was just a browser, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever it looked like at that time. So, uh, but it's it's been quite the evolution. Yeah. But what's it's it's crazy because now I'd say like these last definitely in 2023, definitely see in 2024. Um, it's basically all kind of claimed like this is the year of trust and safety. I was like, well, what were you doing before? Because <laughs> yeah, a bit of focus. They didn't care. Because yeah. there was just because people putting all these fake profiles on there that actually bolsters their user numbers. Yeah, more people are swiping, which generates revenue. So they had there was there was no behoovement to make them worry about trust and safety because it was actually quite the opposite. It's profitable to not worry about. Yeah, you want as many users as possible. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, interacting with one another and potentially leading to offline yeah. experiences and anything that introduces friction to that process is is sort of uh taking a back seat but um i think companies are reconsidering reputational risk and how do i not you know make headlines in various news publications uh so what are the things i can do to maintain a healthy user base but also protect the community well and you know uh uh big daddy u.s government is uh starting to step in as well so which I mean, again, with any industry, that's like, yeah, hey guys, figure it out. Until we feel that you, you know, that now it's a public safety issue because again, you know, because the normalization of catfishing and like romance scams is in pulp culture movies and TVs. Oh yeah, MTV has a show called Catfishing. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's there. Loves that and it's on there. I mean, like you know, the, the Tinder swindler or inventing Anna. Yeah. Also, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's like, oh, this is great entertainment. It's not funny. Yeah, it's no, not, it's not. This is ruining people's lives. Yeah, this at least a suicide, financial debt, homelessness. Yeah. Oh, so it's like it's a major, major problem because as do people under romance scams, sometimes they're so convinced they literally will give the, this person their entire life savings, think that yeah. they're going to come back to the states and marry them. Jeez. They're going to live this like you know perfect life because they're super rich. Or they're and it's just it's completely dreadful. And what I'm happy to see now. Is that there is some new legislation? Oh, well, there's one over in the UK. It's called the Online Safety Bill that passed, okay. um, and that kind of basically that is saying, you know, uh, hey, platforms, you need to adhere to uh, your terms and conditions. And your terms and conditions say can't be on a sex registry list, can't be an assault, you know, um, you know, be convicted of assault, and blah blah blah. But they haven't been enforcing any of this stuff. So what's happening is that there's now a US bill, also called the Online Safety Bill, not very original. Um, but, but that is actually, you know, that doesn't necessarily create the enforcement, but says, Hey, um, if you find a bad actor and somebody who's done either fraud or assault or whatever, you have to notify every single user on your platform. 
that is on it, huh? which see from a data perspective is amazing because now these platforms are going to create these lists of all these really bad actors. Yep. And that's where we want to say, hey, we want to play with all these dating apps. Say, hey, give us that data because yep. then we can early early warning detection to other because what's going to happen? These bad actors are going to go from pla- platform A to platform B, C, yep. D, yeah. E. So if A reports it, we can tell these other ones as an early warning detection. And again, kind of start pushing you know, these bad bad actors out of the system. So, I mean, you're obviously amped up. You're excited uh, <laughs> about legislation sort of helping your cause. Um, what... How, what can you share, if anything, going into next year, 2024, that you're super excited about with your with your platform, with your technology? I think, you know, what, what's exciting is that so this this partnership is going to really kind of slingshot us um, okay. into the limelight, um, which is really exciting. Um, you know, where the expectation is kind of this national press coverage around us. Uh, we're working with some potential legislators as well um, as we're working to be potential experts for them to help them craft some of those bills. Nice. So what I really want to see is, again, I think, you know, 2024 is going to be a big change in the industry. And again, you know, is that is, is that really good for my company? Absolutely. But just, you know, within my, you know, my heart, my heart, it's really going to help, you know, the public. It's going to yeah. really create public safety. And to me, I see in that shift, uh, if I can make a few million dollars uh, pushing that, that's great. Yeah. But uh, it's it's the warm and fuzzies that, that really kind of get me out of bed and, you know, saving because, you know, we're already hearing some of the stories on our platform be like, wow, you know, you helped me avoid a major situation, you know, how you may possibly have saved me. And hearing those stories and knowing that those are growing, but just again, uh, it, it just warrants a conversation. We're not, we're not the morality police. Yeah. We're not the, you know, like, oh, I had, a, you know, you had a DUI from 20 years ago. Like, oh, you're a bad person. No. But if you had a DUI, if you had five DUIs in the last three years, that's warrant yeah. a conversation. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that's making bad decisions on there. So, yeah. We just want to make, you know, open transparency. And I think that's just where it needs to go on it. And I assume we're going to kind of normalize what this looks like in the future. And, you know, it, it'll be, it's going to be an interesting ride, uh, definitely in the next year. And then the next couple of years after the formative years, you're, you're part of the formative <laughs> years of all this, which is kind of, kind of, yeah. it'll be an interesting, interesting journey. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and I kind of saw it before in the in the banking industry because I, yeah. I, when I when I became a new product developer, this would have been twelve years ago. Fraud was at all time highs. Like your card was getting replaced all the time. The consumer confidence was like super low. And what happened is that you know, the financial industry they're like, uh, we're going to pour billions of dollars into creating <laughs> new technology because people are starting to go back to cash. Not a good look for the banks. <laughs> so they poured all this money into finding And at that time, I was a lowly product manager and I was on the forefront of all this kind of new technology. So I saw this wave. And I mean, we reduced like fraud rates from like 10 down to 1%. Still wow. a multi billion dollar problem. Yeah. But it reduces so much. And I see a lot of similarities in, in this industry is that, you know, look, change on, there's no magic bullet. You know, yes, use our product, but other products and like other things in there and kind of layer it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I see a lot of similes. Um, you know, they say, I wish I knew what I knew 10 years ago. Sure. Kind of do. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, if you would, let's let's take a step back from from Brightcheck and kind of what you're doing in the business. And um, think about the audience that's listening in right now who are contemplating or just getting started in, in maybe their second or third act and trying to reinvent themselves. Maybe they're the ones that are inundated with all those responsibilities that they, they can't see themselves breaking breaking out of to pursue what may have used to been um, a, a huge passion of theirs. But what are some of the things 
that they should be thinking about to increase their chances and their probability of success in the future? That's a great question. So I think there is a couple of kind of mantras that, that kind of pop into my head is the first one is be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, you know, because when you get too complacent with stuff, you're never going to make change yes. in your life. And if you start to embrace that knowing that, you know, things that we offer, you don't like public speaking, do some public speaking. You yeah. know, if you don't like, you know, just any of these things that make you feel uncomfortable, because eventually what happens is that you kind of lose that trigger as to that it feels uncomfortable and you become comfortable with it and then you own it and then you master it. Yeah. So kind of move that through. The other one is everything in life is temporary. Everything. Yeah. You know, there's no inevitability. And it's the question to you is when do you want to shift it, you know, this temporary from being a long time or a short time? So that you have some control over of your life and creating kind of this, you know, I always like to do say five years out. I usually hit my five year plans within three years and then redo it. But just making those those plans and in there and just saying, you know, I like to make lists. I like to kind of check things <laughs> off, which is always kind of very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. But just kind of chunking these little things out, but just take it iteratively and small. It's, you know, too much anxiety, too much stress is to do this massive leap of faith, which some people do it. But if you can make slow changes, so by the time you get to that place, be like the change that you want it to be, yeah. all these little incremental changes, it doesn't feel like this huge leap of faith. It's just yeah. been a transition that you have strategically kind of designed out. Sure. John and I talk about getting 1% better every day. We've, we've mentioned that in a number of episodes yeah. Yeah. and, and it's a, it's a good way to prevent yourself from getting overwhelmed. Whether that mm -hmm. 1% is like a, a big 1% or, or just a little like tactical thing you're, you're getting out, you're, you're making an improvement that day to yourself, to your business, to what you want to accomplish. And if you think about it, you know, after, there's 365 days in a year. If you're thinking and doing stuff every day, you're making some pretty significant progress well, by, by the time you get to the end, yeah. the end of that year, let alone three years or five years out. Um, you're talking orders of magnitude at that point. Well, well. And, um, and Michael, so it's good. It's good. Uh, how many times yeah. have we talked about getting out of out of comfort zone? I mean, Scott said it. Oh, yeah. Be, be comfortable with the uncomfortable. We we get to a place where we sit back and we think, oh man, okay, I've made it. You know, I, I, I don't need to, I don't need to go all out. Yeah. And then we wake up years down the road and think, man, what happened to that dream? What happened to that passion? What happened to yeah, my man. marriage? You know, or my kids have grown up and moved out of the house because we got comfortable at some place and we decided we can let things coast. And to his yeah. point, be, be uncomfortable, you know, be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Find find those yeah. things where your foundation is kind of settled and, and maybe you're not working on the basics where you've let yourself kind of atrophy. Go back to those things and and make it uncomfortable um, and figure out what you don't know or what you need to learn to become that much better. I love that quote. So, yeah. Scott, any, uh, any final thoughts or advice uh, you want to share where... Before we wrap things up, I, I think you, you just shared some really important words with our audience about how to yep. think about things. But uh, we always like to end on uh, any fo th final thoughts or advice that that you think would be, uh, if you, if you think about it this way, if you if you never were on another podcast and, and never were to share your wisdom with the world again, what would be the last thing that you would want to give everybody? 
my favorite thing to share with people that are looking at it is that if it was easy, then everybody would do it. Yeah. And yeah. just knowing that it's hard, you know, and put in that mindset, you can get through it. Absolutely. All right. Scott, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Your energy, your positive mindset, your ability to make things happen, as you just shared with us, is definitely going to provide a jolt of motivation for our audience. So thank you. Great. Uh, I'm sure there's many listening who wished they had access to Bright Check in their past life to help ensure a, a safe online and offline experience for themselves or those they love. So if people want to find you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, just brightcheck.com. You can download the apps, web portal. Um, we also have a contact page. So if you want to reach out, I'm always happy to talk to people. Awesome. Okay. And uh, your social channels too, is there uh, some ways to reach you via... Are you are you a big Instagrammer, a LinkedIn? How do you yeah, how do you want to I'm all over, especially especially LinkedIn to those okay. find me up right. Uh but we have lots of social media pages um across the board. Awesome. Yeah. Man. All right. We'll be sure to include those links um below in the episode notes. I'm just glad I'm not dating anymore. I don't <laughs> it's too I don't, complicated. I'm glad I'm not having to navigate navigate that space. So Thank you so much for taking time out of your your day no and your busy schedule to talk with us, man. I know you've given our audience um, something to think about with your story, with yep. Bright Check, and with where they're at. You know, maybe maybe they're contemplating getting into something else, right. uh, but that that little twinge of uncomfortability is keeping them from doing that. So hopefully, listening to your yeah, words yeah. and hearing your story will make them feel comfortable with breaking out of, um, of what they've got themselves into to find something, something, you know, great where they, it restores their passion. Like, like bright check has done for you. So, man, we'll be sure to include, uh, links to Scott's information in the episode details. And, uh, we look forward to reconnecting next week. Thanks Scott. Awesome. Thanks guys. The second act with Michael and John stars, Michael Newborn and John Ballinger. Podcast is produced by Seltzer Kings. For more information on the show, check out michaelandjohn.com. Or if you'd like to get involved in the conversation, give the guys a shout on their socials at The Second Act with Michael and John on most platforms. Thanks for listening. Don't get